Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for the wonderful grace that you pour upon every one of us. We thank you for your empowering Holy Spirit who comes upon us and he quickens our mortal body. And Father, we thank you for that wonderful quickening that we can enjoy and know every moment of the day. And Father, we do thank you too, Lord, that you are doing mighty miracles in this day. And Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that we need patience because we know that you don't just shower these things upon any Tom, Dick, or Harry. But Father, we just thank you that you reward patience, Lord. And those who diligently move on in you and seek to serve you, you come and meet them in a wonderful way. And Father, as we talk about who you are tonight, Father, I just pray that we should be thrilled that this is our God that we're talking about. Oh, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that these studies about you should be more precious than any studies on the gifts of the Spirit, any studies on church order or prophecy or anything like that. Because, Father, it's a privilege that we can know you, let alone know about you, because you're so high and so mighty. Father, we're so privileged that we can come face to face to meet with our God in this way. Thank you for the boldness with which we approach. And thank you that we have not a fear in our heart because we know that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to make us righteous so that we can stand in the presence of our God. Father, therefore, we ask for the fullness of your presence to be upon us tonight, the fullness of the Holy Spirit to fill all things, and that, Father, indeed, you will guide us, that you may be the teacher tonight as we learn about your mighty power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, we're making very rapid progress indeed through the character of God. I don't have to remind you, do I, that uh, you cannot, in 14 talks, cover the whole of God. But what I'm trying to do is pick out the attributes that I think are most clearly revealed in the Bible. We're on the big O's, if you remember, the three big O's. And last Bible study, I spoke about the first O, which was omniscience, that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything, that he's always known everything, he's never learned anything, and he's never forgotten anything, and he knows us right well. And we now move on with haste tonight to the second of the big O's, which is the characteristics of omnipotence. And if you look at the word omnipotence, you'll find it begins with the the four letters that we saw last time, O-M-N-I, omni, which means all. And then followed P-O-T-E-N-C-E, potence, which is, of course, from a word for power. And the word omnipotence simply means all-powerful. And what this is saying is that God has absolute power, and he is the sole uh, depository, as it were, of this power. Now, we can turn to our Bibles immediately, because in the King James Version, but I fear not in the New International Version, we actually have the word omnipotence used in the New Testament. So can we go through to Revelation and chapter 19... And verse 6, verse 5 and 6. This is the only time that the word omnipotence is used in the New Testament. That's in the English of the New Testament, in the King James Version. In verse 5, this is lovely. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants. And ye that fear him, both small and great. And there's the order to praise the Lord. And as a response to that, you get praise. And here's the description of it in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 
All right, now there's the use of the word omnipotent. I should tell you this, that in fact the same Greek word translated omnipotent here is used nine other times in the New Testament, and there it's not translated in the King James as omnipotent, but as, an, as another word which also suits just as well, the word almighty. And those of you with the NIV will have this Greek word translated almighty right the way through. Of these times in the King James Version, where it's translated Almighty, eight out of the nine are in the book of Revelation. Let's have a look at one of them, shall we? In Revelation 11 and verse 17, and please remember it's exactly the same word in Greek. In Revelation 11, verse 17... Or verse 16, And the four and twenty elders which sat before God and their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, there it is, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And so eight of the nine times are used in the book of Revelation. Let's just see the one time that it's used outside the book of Revelation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And here's Paul's use of it. Verse 17, verse 18. Very well-known passage. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 and verse 18. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now that is a statement of his omnipotence. And notice, every time this Greek word is used, it is used only of God, never of man. In the Old Testament... The word almighty is a Hebrew word and a very famous one too. One I think you've probably all heard of. It's the word Shaddai. S-H-A-D-D-A-I. I'm spelling with the help of the overhead projector tonight. Right? Shaddai. And Shaddai is used 56 times in the Old Testament. Every time the word is translated by almighty. And normally it's in the form of El. Shaddai. That's one of the names of God. The word El means God. God Almighty. El Shaddai. God Almighty. So God Almighty, the Almighty God, the God who is all-sufficient, the God who is more than enough. That is the translation you could put on El Shaddai. And praise God, our God is called El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. And so you see the word Shaddai and the Greek words used in the New Testament, they have exactly the same meaning, the Almighty One, used only of God. Now, there are men around who act as if they're almighty and act as if they're omnipotent, right? I've had tendencies that myself that way in the past, right? Nothing like being in a Christian fellowship to teach you that that's not the way of things. But in fact, the truth is that uh, no man at all can ever claim to be almighty. Do you remember that uh, saying, which says this, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, we all know what it means, right? It's a warning that those who have position, those who have power on the face of this earth, must be very careful, because the higher you are, the more the tendency to think that you're someone, and to then think that you become omnipotent. You see? And the more chances as well you have of corruption, of evil wheeler dealing going on. Power corrupts, yes, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Now, we, we all know what that's saying, and of course it has some truth actually within it. This is why, incidentally, in the Christian fellowship, it's important to have eight elders. <clears throat> Sorry, plurality of elders. In our fellowship, eight elders. It's important to have more than one elder. Otherwise, you have one chap who really thinks he's it, and able to control everyone else. And these elders aren't to be sort of a, uh, in a hierarchy, so that there's one boss man at the top, and all the others are yes-sir people underneath, you know, quivering 
people who are frightened of the boss man, there must be total equality among those elders, simply because we know that a fallen man shouldn't be in the position where he has absolute power like that. All have the same rank. Of course, not all will receive the same honor. Those elders who rule well receive double honor. The Bible teachers receive double honor. Those who, receive, uh, who rule badly receive single honor. Nevertheless, they are to have the same, exactly the same status and the same authority. Now, that is plurality of eldership because of this very thing that this warns against. But in fact, if you take it literally and strictly, in fact, none of us can agree to it. Power corrupts, yes, we can agree to that, absolutely. But when it comes to absolute power corrupts, absolutely, that is not a true statement. It's not true for two reasons. One, no man can have absolute power. That's the first thing, right? We've seen that before in sovereignty, haven't we? Do you remember all these mighty men strutting about? But they can't even get good weather for their holidays. That's how powerful they are. Or a little virus comes along and just uh, drops into their nasal passage and suddenly it takes over their whole body. They have to go to bed. One little virus has taken them over. No man has absolute power. None of us can pr prolong our lives by even one day. None of us can do that. And yet, men claim absolute power. No, no man has absolute power. But it's also wrong for another reason, and that is this, that absolute power doesn't corrupt absolutely, because the only one who's got absolute power is our God, and he is not corrupt. We've seen that in holiness. The one who has absolute power is absolutely holy at the same time. He's absolutely holy, he's absolute love, he's absolute mercy, he's absolutely just. Oh, it's wonderful what our God really has, you see? Incidentally, you'll find both of those points in Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 62. And there's a lovely little verse here that, as far as I know, I've never heard read out in any congregation. Psalm 62. <clears throat> and verse 11. Let's take the first part, first of all. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this. Now, that's what the King James says. In fact, what it says is this. God has said one thing, but I've learnt two things from what he said. And then he lists the two things that he's learnt. At the end of verse 11, you've got the first thing that he learnt. The first thing I learned from the one thing God said was this. That power belongeth unto God. And that means that power belongs to God and only to God, and that's true. We must remember this, that whoever's got power and authority on the face of this earth only has it because our God allows them to have it. And when the dear emperor, you know, the madman, Nero, when he was burning Christians alive, he only had that power, you know, because God for a short season allowed him to have that power, and then it was taken away. So power belongs exclusively unto our God. But the second thing he learned, verse 12, also, or number two, Unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. In other words, you are still merciful. You haven't been corrupted by this power. Now, that's a lovely thing. All right, let's have a look at what God's omnipotence, then, is all about. Because really, as we're going to see today, it's well beyond our human understanding. Well, well, well beyond it. We can gain little flashes of it, but really we can never take it in. The vastness of his power. When you say God is omnipotent, what you're saying is that his energy, his power, is totally unlimited. As the mathematician would say, it is totally infinite. It's infinite. Infinite. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means all sorts of things. The first thing it means is God will never run out of power. Isn't that nice to know? right? Sometimes you hear scientists saying, well, in the 5,000 million years, of course, the sun will run out and will gradually fade, you see, and turn into a supernova or something like that. And you think, oh, well, you know, those poor people are still living in Chichester in 5,000 million years' time. And the sun, which, as far as we're concerned, is unlimited, is going to run out. God will never run out. The other thing you know is this, that God never needs replenishment. Right? He never needs to say, oh, hold on a minute, I better rest just a second. Right? He never needs that. Incidentally, if he did, where would he go? I mean, he is the most powerful thing 
Anyway, where would God go in all of, all of the universe to find this power? No. Infinite power means that he'll never, ever, ever run out. You can never come to the end of it. The other thing it means is this, that if you've got infinite power available, to do one thing is as easy as to do anything else. Now, I better explain that. Let me give you an example. Say you've got a man who has 10 pounds. Now, that's not an infinite source of money. You'd all agree, would you? Right? Now, to buy one thing costing 5 pounds and to buy something costing 10 pounds, there's a world of difference between those, isn't there? One takes half his money. The other takes all his money. One he might just do. The other he might think, no, I don't think I can do it. If, however, he owns 10 million pounds... Can you see, to a man who owns 10 million pounds, well, to buy something that's worth five pounds or to buy 10 pounds, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just becomes meaningless. Absolutely, even though it's double in price. You just say, oh, that doesn't matter at all. I heard a millionaire speak the other week, you know, and what he said was this. He went into a shop. He'd just come into this money. He'd written a best-selling book. He'd received a check for half a million pounds. And he went into a shop, tried on the coat, and they said, oh, it's 220 pounds. Oh, he said, he took it off and hung it back up. Oh, dear. And as he was walking down the street, wondering whether he should have a wimpy or not, <laughs> he suddenly thought, hey, I've got half a million pounds. And he said, what's 220 pounds in half a million? Oh, and he went back in. He bought four, <laughs> just to celebrate. You see, if you've got a vast sum, these things are meaningless. Now, do you see, with God, with infinite power, to lift a stone a hundred feet in the air takes so little energy that he doesn't have to think about it. But, but compared to infinity, it's infinitely small. Ah, yes, but so is creating a sun. You see? He can create a sun as easily as lift a stone. God can. Because compared to the infinite nature of his power, both have taken an infinitely small amount of energy. In fact, as far as God's concerned, they haven't taken any energy. It's so minute. Do you see? He can, he can create a nebula as easily as he can create a butterfly. It's so simple as far as he is concerned. Well, we've got to start taking these things in. Because we, you see, with God, tend to say, well, Lord, you can do this one easily, but this might take you a little longer. <laughs> right? That's true, isn't it? That we, we often do think that. It's not true as far as God's concerned. He can do anything at all. Some people, when they read the creation account, you know, that God created in six days and six nights, and then he rested the seventh day. They have this idea, you know, of God resting as we rest, and, oh boy, that's really, phew, I'm exhausted. I'd better go and have a rest. And you, they imagine God lying down for the day, you see? That's totally wrong. Let, I'd better show you that in Scripture. Let's go to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, it asks a question and then gives a, an astonishing statement. Isaiah 40, verse 28. And this is it. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known, he says, question mark, what don't you know this simple thing? Because if you don't, you're in trouble. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There it is. God never gets weary. He doesn't faint. He doesn't say, oh, excuse me, just, I've got to leave you just a second. I'm feeling a bit, bit off. You know, it's taken so much out of me. It's nothing like that at all. Why did God rest? I'll tell you why he rested. To show to the world that he created everything that was necessary to sustain life as long as the earth was necessary. That's why he didn't have to create anything else. It's all there in that six days. The second reason why he rested on the seventh day was to give us a plan that we should try and implement in our lives. Easier said than done, may I say. But there it is, that six days man shall labor. One day ought to be a day of change, of rest, of doing something entirely different. Now that's the reason that God laid it out like that. God actually needn't have taken six days. He could have done it all instantaneously, couldn't he? Right? And you remember earlier on this series, I actually said that one little child had a major query 
you know, about the creation of the universe. And do you remember I told the story of a little boy and little girl who were talking? And the little boy said, do you really believe that God created the heaven and the earth in six days? Yes, said the little girl, I really... Oh, come on. Really? Yes, really. Oh, no, really? Six days and six nights? Really? She said, yes. And then the little boy said, well, what took him so long? <laughs> and you see, that's an important question. Why did God do it? He did it for us to show us and demonstrate something to us. So God, therefore, has unlimited power. And I, I'll tell you this, when we were dealing with sovereignty, do you remember a few weeks ago when we dealt with sovereignty, and we said that God can do as he pleases? Although I didn't say it then, if you're truly sovereign, you have to be omnipotent. Do you see? Because it's one thing to will to do something, it's another thing to have the ability to do it, isn't it? I mean, we'd love to do all sorts of things, but we can't, unfortunately. I tell you one of the things I'd love to do, I'd love to have my Weetabix in Bogner, and then kiss my wife and children bye-bye, and then the next instant appear in Carlisle, right, and say, well, hello, everybody, I'm ready for the day's work, you know, and they say, do you need a bed overnight? No, I think I'll pop back home. I'd love to be able to do that, instead of this 10-hour uh, journey or whatever it is, 8-hour uh, journey to get up to Carlisle. I'd love to do that. Now, the will is there, but you see, I'm not sovereign. I will it, all right, but I can't do it. I'm believing that God, in God that one day I'll be able to. Philip had a touch of it, of course, right? You remember, he was transported all those miles instantaneously, but at the moment, I can't. Now, if God ever wills something and desires that something is done, and he doesn't have the power to do it, do you see, he's not sovereign. So to be sovereign, he has to be omnipotent. And so he is. And when we talked about sovereignty, when we all agreed that God was sovereign, we were actually agreeing that he was also omnipotent. All right, but how can we see omnipotence? I mean, our poor little finite minds, how can we grasp what omnipotence is? Well, having said that we can't, let's have a little go at trying to, shall we? I think there are several things that point to God's omnipotence. The first thing I would point to is this. The creation around us, I think, shows us something of God's omnipotence. And I tell you this, in the Bible, God's always pointing to the creation just to remind us how small we are and to remind us also how big he is. And let's have a look at one or two of those. Let's go to Job, first of all. You all know this passage. Now, in Job, you've got poor old Job who's down in the dumps. And you've got religious people who are coming to share wisdom with him. The trouble is, their wisdom isn't wisdom at all. It's foolishness. And so God has to remind Job, all right, they think they're so great, but listen, I'm the great one around here. And so in this mob, if you don't know Job 38, you've missed something. This is another of those chapters that would be taken with me on a desert island. If I could only choose eight chapters of the Bible, this is one of them that would come. Right, Romans 8 will be one, 1 Corinthians 15 will be another, Job 38 will be another. And I'm sure most of us here, would you agree with that? Would you put your hands up if you would take this particular passage? One or two, perhaps you'd better tell me the ones you'd take. Job 38. Now, look at this. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Isn't that a lovely thing? He darkens counsel. He doesn't give enlightenment. He gives endarkenment. Right? You actually listen to his words and it sounds all right, but in fact you're getting darker and darker. He says, oh yes, who's this talking? Right, so he reminds Job about something. Verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee an answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? <laughs> Stunning, isn't it? Where were you? You hadn't been created yet. Now listen, Job, you dare to question what I'm doing in your life. Will you please remember just who you're questioning? And notice what he says. You've asked all those questions of me. I'm going to ask something about you now, right? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Please remember, I'm bigger than you are, Job. That's the first thing. And you've noticed Job at this point is saying, yes, I'm beginning to get the message about this. And, and by the way, when he learned this message, God brought him into blessing. 
He didn't come into blessing through all the arguments with God. He came into blessing by submission to the bigness of God, the immensity of God and his wisdom. Well, I laid the foundations of the earth. Uh, Do you remember when I did it? No? Oh, right. Then it says, declare if thou hast understanding. Uh, Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Who who did all, all of that? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Has anyone measured it? You know, who's uh, been round with the tape measure to measure what I just laid out in those days? No. And do you see, he's reminding him of how big. Now, here's our God, and what's that? That's omnipotence, isn't it? That you can just lay the foundations of the earth, just like that. Uh, Let's have a look at another. Go to Jeremiah 32. This is a chorus that we've learnt recently. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth with thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing is too difficult for for thee. And so it goes on. Now, that's where this comes from. And if you look at uh, verse 17, and now we know why the R is there, don't we? Because it's so stunning what is being revealed. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Quite amazing. Verse 17, Our Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. That's what it says, and that's omnipotence. In verse 27, there's another one. Behold, it says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And the answer is no. And so man comes along and man thinks he's really the bee's knees, right? We think we've got power around here. We look at the military might of Russia and America and boy, we really think they've got it. These, you know, megaton bombs. Oh, so powerful. Well, not at all. Let's get things just a little bit into perspective. Let's compare the power of man with the power that God has put in the earth. You remember, don't you, that the earth is rather like a ball of custard. You know that, do you? And this ball of custard is there, and a skin has formed all the way around it. So you've got this very thin uh, skin, which we call the crust, and this huge ball of molten... It's not custard, actually, but it's, you know, various magmas and things like that inside. Now, the earth shows fantastic power. You just look at the power of a volcano. You have a look at the power of an earthquake, of an avalanche, of a tidal wave. You see the power in that. Or just look at the ordinary power of the sea. If we could harness the power of the sea, we'd only need about a mile stretch of beach. We could power the whole of Great Britain if we could capture all of that energy. I mean, the power in creation is amazing when you think of it. Do you know what the largest explosion the earth has ever had, what it is? It happened almost exactly a hundred years ago in 1883 when the volcanic island of Krakatoa in Indonesia blew up. Do you all remember the... Well, you don't remember it, but do you all remember reading? (laughs) Only a few of you remember that. But do you remember reading about Krakatoa? I mean, it was so vast, that explosion. Man has nothing... I tell you, compared to Krakatoa, a, a megaton bomb is a pea shooter. In comparison, it's worth thousands of megaton bombs, is Krakatoa. Pumice and ash were blown 17 miles into the air. It created a tidal wave which was 100 feet tall. Now you imagine a wave, imagine the weight of water, right, in a 100 foot wave. And it moved so rapidly that in one direction, to the west, It went from Krakatoa right the way across the Indian Ocean and hit the uh, east coast of Africa. Right across the Indian Ocean. You imagine it. On the other side, okay, it went towards the east and it hit the west side of South America. And you know, that's right across the Pacific. That's almost half the circumference of the world. A hundred foot of water from one volcanic island exploding. And people were drowned on the west coast of South America by this tidal wave. Its effects were felt right the way up to uh, Alaska. So much dust was put into the atmosphere that even in London, the evenings became dull. And 
This dust settled, even in London, it was so vast. The explosion was so mighty, it was heard in Japan 3,000 miles from Krakatoa. That's rather like a bomb going off in New York, and we hear it in London. I mean, that's staggering power when you think of it. Have you heard any megaton bombs being tested recently? No, not at all. Why? Even if you were almost living on top of them and they were underground tests, you could hardly hear them. You see? I mean, we can't compare these things. Not at all. In 1888, I could go on and on, of course, I studied seismology. But uh, in 1888, you know, a Japanese volcano erupted, and in one moment of time, it moved three billion tons of rock. Now, a quarry, that's a quarryman's dream, <laughs> isn't it? You imagine, oh, we just let off a little explosion here, three billion tons of rock. You see, it's absolutely vast. Now, that's the Earth. You imagine the power in a hurricane. Now, the day will come, perhaps, when men will try and harness that power. They won't even touch it. It still rips its way through. You can build concrete walls and all the rest. It will go right the way through them. You see? I mean, vast power in all of these, these things, these uh, tropical storms. All right, now that's the Earth. We can't compare to the Earth. But I'll tell you something. Compared to the sun, the Earth is puny. The Earth's a little pea shooter compared to the sun. Let me uh, get some facts down. These are facts that, of course, we all keep in our heads, right? <laughs> the sun has a diameter of 865,000 miles. I mean, that is fantastic, isn't it, right? It's reckoned that its temperature at the center is 20 million degrees absolute. 20 million degrees, yeah? It's so hot that in fact we live 93 million miles approximately away from the sun and if the, the earth weren't shrouded with all these protective barriers we'd be frying like Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's how hot, now that's pretty hot isn't it? You imagine the hottest furnace you know. If you go away 50 feet you can't feel it. But the sun, we can feel 93 million miles away. And I'll tell you something else. We only receive a minute percentage of the energy that comes out of the sun. Minute. In fact, we receive one part in 120 million. And it's so hot, we have to cover ourselves with suntan lotion, right? I mean, we're a bit like a sort of um, uh, oiled cod or something, aren't we? We walk around like that in the summer. If we don't, we get burnt up. That's staggering. A few more facts. The pressure on the surface of the sun is six billion pounds, right, per square inch. I mean, that's absolutely vast. But let me tell you something else. Our sun is so puny that it doesn't compare with most stars in the solar system. Billions of stars are so large that our sun would hardly be seen compared. Some of the stars in the solar system have a diameter of 700 million miles. I mean, that's pretty impressive, don't you think? Billions, billions, billions. And God created every one of them. Not just created. Let me tell you the terms that are used in the Bible about God's creation of these things. You've never read such a simple statement in all your life. Let's go to Psalm 8. Right? In Psalm, Psalm 8, those of you who've heard my Bible studies will know I love this passage as well. Here it is, in Psalm 8, no wonder he writes, uh, we're in verse 3, no wonder he writes verse 4 directly afterwards. In verse 3, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers. I just love that, you know, he didn't need his mighty arm to do it. I, I imagine him sort of playing with little beads, you know, and just flicking them over there. I sometimes take my wedding ring off, you know, and spin it round. And I imagine God, oh well, just pop them out. Doesn't even think, doesn't take any energy as far as he's concerned. And there it is, the whole universe comes into existence. On the fourth day, all the universe, right, all the stars were just created. There we are. And why did God take a day? Because he decided to take a day. He didn't have to. Now, do you see, we're getting some concept of what God's omnipotence is all about. And the whole creation is in the palm of his hand. He sort of puts it in his pocket when he's finished with it. Oh, well, I'll keep it safe 
just in there. And then the psalmist goes on, look, when I consider thy heavens, the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I mean, it's so staggering, your creation. Why are you interested in little specks of dust like us? And that's a good question, isn't it? And I'll tell you why. Because he's infinite in his love. That's why. Oh, do you remember when we saw omniscience last time? I said, if God wasn't omniscient, he'd never find us. <laughs> the universe is so vast, he wouldn't know where we were. He'd be looking around saying, oh, I plumb lost them. Where are they? Because I had him a second ago. It's wonderful that God is. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, do you see, when you just take a quick look at creation, you begin to see the almighty power of God. There's another thing that, we, that shows us the omnipotence of God, though. It's the way God sustains the creation. Next July, we collide with Mars, says the song. Oh, no, we don't. Why not? Because God keeps us apart. That's why. And do you know that God constantly, every moment of the day, is keeping the whole creation in order? Isn't that wonderful? Where do we find that? That's in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews in chapter 1. Right, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and actually this is talking about the Lord Jesus. But that doesn't give us any problem, because we know about the Trinity now. Wonderful. This is why I say about Jesus as a baby that at the same time that he was blowing bubbles of love to his mother in his humanity, in his divinity, he was holding the whole universe together. Isn't that amazing when you think of it? I mean, is your mind boggling? It should be at this point. Now, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and listen to this, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And that means holding everything together. Every little molecule is held together by the power of God. Every solar system is held together by the power of God. Every planet is on its course by the power of God. Now, I'll tell you this. God makes mid-course corrections all the time. I'm absolutely convinced about it. You see? God keeps everything in perfect order. When you wake up in the morning, you've woken up because God has kept life in your body. And you should start praising God that another day is actually before you. All the time, he's involved in everything. Right? Do you know not a blade of grass would grow anywhere save that the Lord Jesus, save that God himself was involved in that blade of grass? And that's the fact given in the Bible. Now, of course, we're scientists. We can explain everything with natural law. You see? Oh, but the natural law keeps all these things together. Oh, yes? Do you know if God dozed off for a split second, we'd suddenly find these natural laws don't work. It's only God the God behind the natural laws that actually keeps them functioning. And I'll tell you, if we are to be people who live by faith, which we are, we've got to come into a greater revelation of this. For it's only as we start estimating that God is intimately involved in every detail of life that we'll start seeing him involved in every detail of life. We've got to come into a bigger revelation of these things. I'll show you what I mean in Matthew, <coughs> in Matthew chapter 6. Let's go to Matthew 6 and have a, a little look at this. And here's the words of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the King James Version doesn't really bring over the, the power behind the present tense in the Greek. Let's uh, read it, verse 26. Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, Neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Now, can I put the present tense in another form there? Yet your heavenly Father is feeding them. That's present tense. Every day the Father feeds the little birds. Oh yes, they're pecking around in the soil. Who's actually the one behind their feeding? It's God himself who is. Right? If God stopped that ministry, they would die straight away. Then it says this, Are you not much better than they? 
to start reckoning that God is the one who provides. That's why every time I receive a love gift, I put it in my hands and I say, Father, they think they've given it to me, but praise you, I know you've given it to me. I start reckoning on that. Every bill that comes in, I do the same. Oh, we'll all do it for the bills. Lord, this is your bill. But listen, <laughs> you can't do it for the bills if you're not doing it for the resource also coming in. You've got to get the balance right. Then it says, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? The evolutionist would tell you that surely you could. You know, just think about it just a little. You know, well, I need to be taller. Right, I'm going to think about it. I mean, the giraffe needed to be taller. Look what he ended up with, right? That's it. So I'm going to keep doing that. Or I love to be a swimmer in the sea, so I'll just keep plunging in until one day gills develop. But this says, no matter how much thought you take, you can't add anything. It's only God that does it. And then verse 28. And why take ye thought for raiment? You'll notice my jacket has just been uh, to the cleaners, you know. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God is so clothing the grass of the field, constantly doing it, he's, that's why when you take your children for a walk and you say, look at this flower, Jesus did that. You're not telling them a lie, that's absolute truth. Jesus himself designed the thing and he is the one who brought it out into into bloom, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, O ye of little faith? And of course the answer is yes. Come into a bigger revelation of it. These things don't occur by natural law. They occur by God's direct hand. Now, nearer Christmas time, I'm going to sh show you a film called The Extraordinary Sex Life of Plants. If ever there was an advertisement for creation, that's it. You know? Do you know that some insects see in ultraviolet light? And so what they do, and you see this in part of the film, they show you some of the flowers that are around that need the insects to pollinate them. And in the, when you look at them with the ordinary eye, they look lovely. But you can't see anything particularly. Then look at them through ultraviolet eyes, and you know they've got roadways marked all the way down to the places where they should be fertilised. Evolution would say, well, this little plant was there saying, no insect comes around to fertilize me. I know why, says the little plant. It's because they see in ultraviolet. So I better do something about this, and I better put markings that can only be seen in ultraviolet. So it did. Could you do that? Well, I want to have some ultraviolet markings around. Well, we wouldn't know how to go about it, but a little plant apparently can. It's not true. God is the one who did it. He's the one who develops all of these systems, right? And that's going to be, a, a, you mustn't miss that film, right? <laughs> God is the one who has to be reckoned as the power behind all of these things. I, I mean, you know where I live, by the sea. One of the things Ros and I praise God for constantly is that it's God who stops the sea where it stops. <laughs> praise the Lord. I let you into a secret. An elder in our fellowship actually did the sea defences along there. Oh, but praise God, it's God that stops the sea. <laughs> right? Where does it say that? Well, I may as well show you. Let's go back to Job 38. I should have mentioned this when we were there, I suppose. Go back to Job 38. Look at this, lovely. Ros and I know this one off by heart. Sometimes when the storm's up, we have to quote it constantly, <laughs> especially when our front door's caving in. Job 38, verse 11. This is God speaking. And God said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Right there. That's it. Bognor Seafront, no further. That's it. Of course, isn't it funny that near here in Bosom is the place where a certain famous king in English history, King Canute, do you remember him? He put his throne down by the side of the waves and he said, go back, O sea. And in history classes up and down the land, out comes the same old story. You see, this man was so stupid, he thought he could command the sea to go back. He told the sea to go back and it didn't go back. I have to tell you, that's not what happened. Do you know that when you get to heaven, your dear brother, King Canute, will be there? Did you know that? 
Did you know he was a born-again, Bible-believing king of England? And like every other Bible-believing, born-again king of England, he's been vilified and made to look a fool. Richard III was another. You see, born-again man, brilliant administrator. Oh, sure. All the others are given, you know, a beautiful write-up. All the born-again ones are made out to be fools. Do you know what really happened? King Canute got tired of the way that his servants kept treating him as if he was a god. And he kept saying to them, I'm not God. There is one God. You better start worshipping him. But don't worship me. But they carried on and on and on, worshipping King Canute. So he said, I'll show you how much a God I am. And he went down to Bosom. Right? Lovely place to pick. Went down to Bosom. He put his throne there. And he said, go back, sea. And as the sea came in and inundated him, he said, do you see? I haven't even got power to turn the sea back. Why worship me? Worship the real God instead. And there's the truth behind the story of King Canute. Isn't it staggering, eh? It's God who puts the bounds on the sea and absolutely no one else. Of course, then, we can see God's omnipotence in many, many other ways. The life of Jesus shows the omnipotence of God, doesn't it? I mean, he went into a certain place, he healed all the sick that were in that place. So Lazarus was dead four days, that's nothing. Lazarus, come out here a sec, can can we just discuss this a moment? Right, now Lazarus came. Up from the dead, Lazarus arose. Only temporarily, he died a few years later, you know, but there it is. The lepers came, totally incurable as far as man was concerned, and Jesus said, well, it's nothing, (laughs) nothing to God. If you will, you will make, I will, says Jesus. And he touched him, laid hands on him, and he was completely healed. And you know, leprosy was one of the most disfiguring diseases. Can we imagine what it meant for a leper to be healed? You see? Very often, as you know, they lose all sensation. And they put their hands in fires, their, their fingers are burnt off. And they don't know what's happening. That's why it's so disfiguring. And I imagine that this leper came up, he had no fingers left. His hands were gnarled. Perhaps his feet, you know, were just ragged bits of skin. Jesus said, I will. And he just laid hands on him. Perfect hands developed all of a sudden. Perfect feet. That's the omnipotence of God. Every time you experience healing, every time we see healing in a congregation, I'll tell you what it is, you have seen a minute, infinite fraction of the omnipotence of God revealed. Well, so we could go on. I still think the greatest display of God's omnipotence is actually in our redemption. That's my personal view of this. That even compared to the creation, our redemption is greater. You see, when God created the earth, there were no enemies around, right? He didn't have sin to conquer. He didn't have death to conquer. He didn't have hell to conquer. He didn't have the devil. He had no opposition. But when it came to your redemption, he had opposition all the way. And yet the glorious fact is that his power was revealed when Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended into heaven. That's the magnificent power of God, the omnipotent power of God revealed. In Ephesians chapter 1, that's what it actually says. In Ephesians 1, and here Paul is praying, and he prays that we'll get a vision of this power. I know of no other passage which uses so many words for power in it as verse 19. In fact, Paul exhausts the Greek vocabulary as far as power is concerned. He actually uses four different Greek words for power in this one verse. Let's just read from verse 17. This is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And this, listen to this. This is it. Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet. 
And so it goes on. That's the power of God revealed. He gave us a wonderful salvation and overcame all the enemies that came against him. It's at the cross that the power is revealed. Satan disarmed. Our sins absolutely dealt with. Oh, wonderful day when Jesus washed my sins away. That's the omnipotent power of God. Fancy that. God has chosen a whole group of nobodies like us to confound the wise. That's power, isn't it? Oh, yes. He's still hanging the earth upon nothing. Look at us. Yet, the, the, yet we, through our prayers, could direct the whole course of this nation. God chose imbeciles, simpletons, and used them in months to turn the world upside down. That's power. And you, as far as the devil is concerned, you represent God's power. He can't stand you. If, he'd had his, if he had had his way, you'd have been discounted. You know? Oh, they're just nothing. And yet God has put you in a position through the work of Jesus Christ where even the devil is under your feet. That's why he hates you so much. You stand for the very power of God as Christians. It's great news as far as we're concerned. I'll tell you something else. He hasn't only saved your soul. He's promised you a resurrection body. And the power of the new life that you've got is enough to keep that resurrection body forever and forever and forever. That resurrection body will never get tired, never get weary. It will always be beautiful, right? In the prime of life. It won't need philosam. Nothing like it. <laughs> the power is there. It will be totally self-sufficient because the power of God is able to sustain you. That's the reason, incidentally, why the resurrection body has no blood in it at all. That's the reason. Why? Well, I'm not going to explain that tonight, you know. Do you know that the resurrection body can eat food, but it doesn't have to? Certainly not. It can drink, but it doesn't have to. Right? It can walk along as we walk along, but it can also go vertically up. It has no blood in it, and it's the lack of blood that shows how self-sufficient that is. And I'm going to do something rare in the Bible study tonight. I've actually dealt with that in great detail on the four tapes on sonship that I did at a recent conference. And so if you're intrigued to know why the resurrection body has no blood, you're not going to hear it tonight. But it's all revealed on that tape. And you'll understand the role that blood has and why we don't need it in the resurrection body. Oh, those people who don't come to conferences, the gems that we miss, right? All right, having said all that, let's just do what we have done in every one of these series. Let's see a scripture that shows that God is omnipotent, God the Father, all right? Now, obviously, I've listed quite a number, or told you about a number, at the beginning of this talk. So let's see an unusual one. Let's go to Mark 14, Mark 14, 62. You might read this through and say, well, where does it say there that God is omnipotent. Well, beautifully. Verse 62, Jesus says this, and Jesus said, I am, uh, we better read just the end of verse 61, art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And there, it's amazing, we know that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God the Father. And here he is called power itself. And you see, it's synonymous. Power is the Father. That's omnipotence. Now, that's one of many, many statements. Right? You read all the statements in Revelation. They all say that God the Father is almighty or omnipotent. Where does it say the Son is? Well, let's go to an interesting passage in Colossians. In Colossians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, and this is amazing. Having said that God created everything, now, let's read this. Yes, God did. But Jesus is the one who actually did it. And in Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16, talking about Jesus, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So who's the one who spread out the nebulae? Jesus is. Who's the one who put power into our son? Why, Jesus did it, the work of his fingers. That's all it was. There's the omnipotence of Jesus Christ. And there are other places as well. Last of all, the Holy Spirit is said to be omnipotent 
in Romans 15, remember we said about the Trinity, one in essence, but three in personality. So the three members of the Godhead have to share these attributes. So in Romans 15 and verse 19, Paul's writing and he says, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And he's talking there of the, the miracles that followed him, right? And these are signs of the omnipotence of God. And there the Holy Spirit is said to be the Spirit of power. All right? So there are these wonderful things. Last of all, what does omnipotence mean to us as believers? Well, it's the most wonderful thing. You see, we are in this glorious position to say, yes, God is omnipotent, and I'm glad to say he's a very good friend of mine. That's a lovely thing, to have a friend like that. And so omnipotence for us means that we can have trust and confidence because God is always there. And behind every scripture that talks about God's power for us, you have God's omnipotence. And I think it would be well worth our while just looking at one or two well-known scriptures. Right? If you have a promise box or anything like that, or you write down the promises, make sure you've got these on the list. Uh, you probably have. Let's just zip through some of them. Ephesians 3.20. You all know these. This is an El Shaddai verse. God who is more than enough. Lovely. This is a wonderful one. When I do my verse-by-verse -verse study of Ephesians, I'm going to have a whale of a time with this, a meal we'll have from this verse. Verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory. Wonderful. We can have power and confidence for our salvation. We find that in 1 Peter 1, verse 5. I love this verse, as you know. Right? In 1 Peter 1, verse 5, look at this. We have an inheritance, sure. But verse 5, this is talking about you, my beloved brothers and sisters. You who are kept... What by? By your own power? No, sir. You might as well give up now if you're kept by your own power. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You're kept by the power of God. And it doesn't just mean here that there's a little bit of power. God, when you reach heaven, isn't going to be mopping his brow saying, I really didn't think you were going to make it. You know, oh, whew, heavens, we've been so worried up here. It's not going to be like that. You won't get in through the skin of your teeth. You will make it with plenty of power over as well. Because God isn't that type of foolish builder. When he takes you on, as we saw last time, he takes you on with plenty to spare. Right? Don't turn to it. You all know this verse in Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He's able to do it. And we're kept by his omnipotent power. Um, another one that comes to mind. Let's just check this one again. Uh, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Then we'll have for our last verse. For tonight. In John 10, now read this carefully. Every person who believes you can lose your salvation, you've got a real problem in these two verses. Verse 28. This is talking about those who will be saved. Look, verse 28. And Jesus says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's the promise. Once Jesus has given you eternal life, you will never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's what it says. Now, in case you think, ah, oh, but hold on, oh, excuse me. Before you've got any arguments, read the next verse. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. 
And if you're in his hand, and he's greater than anyone else, you can't open it. That's what he's actually saying. Some people say, oh yes, but you can open God's hand. Oh yes, that means you're greater than God. That's what it means. My father is greater, there it is, than all. And none, no one, including you, is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. No one at all. He's greater than anybody, and he's got them. And that's it. Now there's omnipotence for you. All right, just to end, I tell you one thing that omnipotence also does. It leads us into worship, if we have any idea of what it's about. So let's end in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 17. Confidence, trust, but worship also. 2 Kings 17, verse 36. Here it says, and talking to Israel, of course, But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall ye fear, and him shall we, ye, ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice. And I would say that to understand anything about God's omnipotence is to begin bowing the knee to him and recognizing that he is greater than us all. Next time, we're on the third big O, a really fascinating one too, one of my favorites. It's the subject of omnipresence, that God is everywhere at once. Praise God. Let's just pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you not only desire and will to save us, but you've got the power to do it also. Father, we're so very grateful. Oh, hallelujah. And Father, I do thank you so much that you are a mighty God, Father, we want to see that power in our own lives, Lord. Father, we want to see a bigger measure. We would ask you to lead us on in holiness. Father, lead us on into that purity without which no man shall see the Lord. That, Father, you indeed, Lord, will be the very support of our lives. And that, Father, we should know that quickening power upon every one of us. Just bless us as we go to our beds now. Father, give us peace, give us rest. Father, we're so mindful. So thankful that you know us right well and that you remember we are dust. And I would ask, Lord, you will teach us how to rest. Teach us to take time off. Father, in Jesus' mighty name, just bless us and bless all who listen to these studies on tape. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise God.